0: From the medical republic i'm wendy john this is the tea room welcome to the health inequity gap i mean it's not a gap it's a vast chasm of intercontinental proportion or it feels that way sometimes when most medical resources are grappling to put out constant fires and no one seems to be doing the strategic the preventative backburn if that scenario has ever fatigued you then today's guest might just be the medicine okay pun intended sorry about that you're looking for David Dembo heads up Health Catalyst Australia and New Zealand and is working with healthcare organisations across the country to access every piece of data involved in a patient's journey and then analysing that data to create better outcomes. He's very passionate about healthcare equity, loves a bit of AI and believes we can leverage existing tools better to optimise patient experiences no matter who or where they are. Can we solve healthcare inequity through data? And what do doctors in their clinics have to do with it anyway? Let's find out. Thanks for joining us, David Dembo.
1: Wendy, thank you for having me.
0: Look, it's a big claim, David, to say that data can solve a gap that's been created by a multitude of factors, structural inequity, structural racism, the tyranny of distance, you know, lack of representation in policymaking, and a particularly designed medical funding model. So how can data minimise health inequities in Australia?
1: Well, like all things data, data is an enabler, not necessarily the medication. But the first step in addressing things like inequity is to create transparency around where that exists. And I I loved your statements around collecting data on the entire patient journey, because it's the data in the entire patient's journey, most of which is outside of the health system, that you find the clues to inequity that need to be surfaced not just in the consultation but prior.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: Well the first thing to think about when it comes to inequity is that we traditionally think about equity of access and that people from poorer households or less educated households uh, have less access to healthcare, and that is true. But you also have geographic inequities where our rural communities just don't have the the level of access that metro folk do and and a lot of that's being partially resolved with telemedicine and the new models of care which is fantastic but that is an an inequity the other inequity that doesn't get talked of often is luck so not every person turning up at a hospital in our country has the same chance of a positive outcome as anybody else with similar pathology it depends on what time of day you turn up, what day you turn up, and the luck of the draw of the clinician you might have uh, that day, might not have slept last night, might be a few more iterations away from the evidence than the doctor you might have seen if you turned up an hour later. So there's a huge amount of variation in the health system that creates inequities in in, in terms of the outcomes that consumers of health services get anyway. So we've got inequity issues right across that patient journey that you described. And it's not just the traditional access equity issue, it's the experience and outcome that, that varies greatly.
0: Have you seen changes in how people are working with data in our sector?
1: What's encouraging, certainly from Our vantage point is where, say, in 2019, only about 25% of our customers had equity as one of their top three priorities, likely accelerated by COVID. Well over 60% of our customers now see equity as a top three priority because they can see it as a quality metric. So getting awareness around equity is the starting point. And for organizations that see it as a priority, they then tend to look at the data.
0: I guess you can't manage what you don't measure.
1: Completely so. And the data leaves wonderful signals of decisions that are made or decisions that are not made, depending on who made them and who is the recipient of the decisions being made. So the organizations we work with will look at their data to map consumption of hospital resources against the outcomes achieved by location that the patient came from, their age, their gender. Gender is often also another inequity where either there's a prejudice against women or men, or often when it's men, it's we prejudice ourselves by not coming forward early enough. Those type of inequities also exist. So language spoken, cultural background, all of those things are important ways of cutting the data to see which of those views give you the best and worst outcomes. Once you know, you can then target populations. And many of our customers will look for suburbs and specific cultural groups living in those suburbs to go proactively to to either do health education or or improve screening screening is not something that all cultures embrace equally particularly in immigrant cultures like ours here in australia where some new immigrants may not have been brought up with screening as part of the health services they were used to or could have had negative experiences uh, around health system service delivery so you have to understand the person in their context, and the best way to do that is just to look at the subpopulations that are experiencing the worst outcomes and, and then target services to them. But going back to one of the points you did make, can data solve all of this? No, data kind of points you at who you need to be having a conversation with. The rest comes down to dialogue, going out and having the conversation and getting to understand one on one and in focus groups what really is the root cause.
0: What is new about what you're suggesting?
1: What's new is that we've been talking about these things for decades and we've, it's kind of felt like we've been preaching to the few. What's new is that most organizations, the majority of the organizations overseas and and now in Australia in the conversations we're having, see this as a priority and are doing meaningful work.
0: Can you give us an example?
1: So uh, sepsis is probably one of them. Sepsis is one of the areas that these early warning systems have proven most effective. So you get subtle changes in respiratory rates or fluctuations in uh, heart rate variability and temperature that aren't picked up as quickly by rounding than an algorithm that can look for that in the data. And when you can surface those type of signals and get a care team to the patient earlier, but things like septicemia, the quicker you can diagnose and the quicker you can start treating, the less likely that patient is to deteriorate. But it's it's not just in septicemia and septic shock, it's understanding whether you are providing care as close to the best practice protocol as possible. So even knowing whether the catheter had come out of the patient on time or delayed is something you either don't know about if you've asked for it as the attending physician or you only found out about it in immortality and mor- mortality around, which is a retrospective view. But these systems are able to flag when a catheter hasn't been taken out in time, according to best practice. It's, it's alerting real time to the care teams, the milestones that they're missing. And the, the problem we, we're facing is that this is despite best effort of an overworked, workforce the average doctor gets interrupted eight times an hour the workload of a nurse is huge and getting worse as we struggle with staff shortages so to have all of these things in mind around what you've got to do for a patient and make sure it gets done in time you can't really do without decision support that's kind of guiding you along
0: David Dembo was formerly a general practitioner, so we started to talk about, well, what kind of devices are useful for providing decision support to GPs, and got on to the topic of wearables.
1: Well, this is one of the exciting things about medicine in the next decade that we're moving into, because the technologies that we've talked about and the potential are here. So one in four Americans, all all the stats you have tend to be American, but um, I don't think Australia is that far behind, but one in four Americans have a smartwatch. So you've got a highly digitized population, definitely not equitable. It's those that can afford it for sure. So we've got an equity problem there that we can resolve because the business case for doing so is starting to become very strong. But... The health systems that we've inherited are geared to treat people in crisis. You kind of land up at the hospital when you're in crisis and you go to see your GP generally when you're in crisis. It, very little of it is about preventing the crisis in the first place. And yet you've got this digitized life where we've got data that is being collected. It's just not being analyzed. It's not being integrated into the health system where you can intervene early. And these wearables are very good at motivating. Well, not on their own, but they're very good at measuring movement. What the successful programs have done is understood human psychology and incentives and motivations and teaming and game theory and all those things that are required to keep you engaged with the device and and make the lifestyle changes you take on sustainable. But there's heaps of evidence of how to do that in, in a meaningful way. But now, You've got the infrastructure in place that the government hasn't needed to fund yet. I think they will, because you've seen insurers start to pay for wearables too, and I think more and more you're going to see governments try and supplement that funding too, so that those that don't have private health insurance can also, the health system can also have this kind of visibility on their relative risk.
0: So this could all have a powerful impact on improving preventative health the amount of data that can be used to help turn off the tap to some of those chronic diseases that are significantly, you know, the disease burden is significantly heavier for people in geographically remote locations, for people in poorer suburbs, for people who are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. The whole range of disadvantage could be uplifted if we targeted preventative health and data can be used to identify early where to turn off the tap?
1: Absolutely. So part of the challenge with prevention is that it's difficult. Part of the challenge with prevention is that our health system is focused on acute services. But the biggest problem with prevention is that the health system is completely blind to most of how people live their lives. So in Australia, the average Aussie sees their GP five or six times a year. If you lucky that GP can spend 15 minutes with you, but it might be five or 10 of the amount of time that represents in terms of data capture. And and remember, we believe that the social determinants of health are 80% of your risk. And those social determinants of health are not data points that are captured in the traditional health system, but with these wearables, they could be. So if you see your GP five to six times a year, that probably represents 0.02% according to my math I did when I read that stat of the data points available. And we know that you have white coat syndrome, that when you go see your GP, if you're going to take a blood pressure reading there, it, it's clinically far less reliable than taking blood pressure readings in uh, the patient's home when they, where they're relaxed. And we can certainly rely on wearables to tell us how much somebody moves. And you'd said, Wendy, just how important it is, not just in in treatment of chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity, but in mental health. It's absolutely part of of the prescription. If people are active, particularly kids, if you're active, you are far less likely to suffer as severely with that mental health issue. And it's also a great early indicator of deterioration. So if you're able to monitor that somebody who's on a mental health care pathway is becoming sedentary, that's usually a sign that there's something wrong. The Robert Woods Johnson Foundation did research more than a decade ago where they were tracking what uh, teenagers uh, with depression were the songs they were listening to and the, the words that they, they were using with their text. And if you know if a teen started to listen to Barry Manilow, then the community care nurse would uh, reach out. <laughs>
0: Kidding? Are you kidding, well, Barry Manilow? Well,
1: I, I'm, I'm using uh, Barry Manilow just uh, in jest, but um, oh, yeah, <laughs> we're looking at. If you see oh, trained, I
0: was going to say how many young people listen to Barry Manilow, but look, hey, love a bit of Barry myself. Yeah, well,
1: but, uh, well part of part of well, my, certainly my generation, but uh, y- y- all these data signals exist. It's just that the health system isn't aware of them. It has, doesn't have that visibility.
0: Now, I spoke to uh, Professor Ian Hickey, who is the head of the Brandon Mine Institute at the University of Sydney. He he won, he was a co-winner of Australia's Mental Health Prize last year with uh, honour Eastley. And he was saying in a story, a podcast I did for The Tea Room, Medical Republic's podcast, The Tea Room, confirming, of course, what you're saying. That whole of health approach makes such a difference for mental health outcomes.
1: Yeah, completely. And and we need to expand our thinking around wearables and the internet of things because part of what we, I'm going to say should be, but, but that's not the right word because we are doing it, is integrating how we communicate with each other into the health system too. So HealthCatMist recently acquired the most incredible patient engagement platform called Twistle. And why I say it's incredible is because the patients say so. The engagement rates and the satisfaction scores are well into the 90s. What does it do? It automates conversation with the patient around the things that the health system just doesn't have the bandwidth to scale to communicate sufficiently with the patient. Like what? So if a patient say, I'll come back to a mental health example, because that's a really good one as well. But you know, if you've got a, a patient who's coming in for a colonoscopy, There's a a lot of work that the frontline staff have to do to make sure that that patient's going to turn up on time and turn up understanding the procedure and having fasted and, and all of those things, and then educate them before they discharge and then going home uh, into some form of rehab, you know, with, with the colonoscopy, there's less rehab, but say for a hip, it's the same example. So what Twistle does is it takes that communication and sends secure messages to a patient, but customized for that patient. So rather than having your frontline staff having to pick up the phone and and, and phone people or or try and email people or give them handouts, which is what most of the health system does, this sends very well-timed, personalized messages to a patient to say, you're coming in tomorrow for your procedure. We know you were on this particular drug. You should stop it now. And at 10 o'clock at night, this is when you should be fasting. It'll send you a message then. It will send you home with a whole range of automated education and check-ins and wound checks so that if you're doing okay, you can see that you're following the bouncing ball and you report that you are, but you can also surface very early if you're not. So if you're nervous about a procedure, you can say I am because this platform is gonna ask you that question. And if you are, then uh, it surfaces an opportunity For the doctor to have the conversation or the nurse to have the conversation with you and reassure you so that you do turn up and you don't become a no-show. Let's get
0: back to the equity issue. In your experience, how many healthcare institutions have equity as a quality measure, like a a key performance indicator?
1: Right. So we know from our customer base that pre-COVID 2019, only about a quarter of them had equity as a top priority. What we saw through COVID is an acceleration of that because it became obvious through COVID the disparities in people's access, understanding and outcomes through the pandemic. What we see now is that 60% of our customers see equity as a top three priority. So what Catalyst has done is it's it's negotiated secondary data usage rights with uh, most of its customers, which means we've got a data repository that has probably in excess of 60 million patients with multi-year, multi-visit clinical input. So that gives us a great reference database to understand what best practice should be and, and what general equity exists in most health systems, whether you're more or less equitable than, than, than a peer facility. But it also gave us the ability real time to help this hospital see those inequities, and understand who was most likely to deteriorate from contracting the disease fastest and where they should be targeting, uh, not just in, in, in predisposition, but certain suburbs that were going to likely be hardest hit, where they should be going up proactively and vaccinating populations.
0: And did the hospitals have the resources to respond to the data?
1: Yes, more and more so. So if you can use the data to help a hospital manage by exception, in other words, Target their limited resources to those that need it most, then yes, hospitals tend to have enough resources to, to get the job done. It's when you're trying to do this for everybody who work, walks through the door that you run out of capacity very quickly. Now we're always going to have. Constraints. So it's, a kind
0: of a, it's kind of a technical triage almost for most patients who are most likely to have poor outcomes. Sure, in and, a long, in a medium and long term, as opposed to the immediate acute triage, which most practitioners are familiar with.
1: Sure. So there's there's even a third category. So you, you've talked about um, you know human triage, and you've you've talked about technology triage, where the algorithms looking for uh, signals in the data to say this 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 patient has likely got X Y Z in, intervene. But there's also the patient self triage. A patient often will know whether they are Deteriorating, and they just need a mechanism to reach out. And some of that can be done asynchronously if you've got the ability to surface a problem to a care team. So, technology does offer scalability in triaging in the hospital setting, but also in the community.
0: Picking up on the mental health for young people example that you gave, uh, being able to track what's happening in their lives outside of those few interventions with the primary care provider, looking at what they're doing, what their text messages are saying. Yes, that sounds incredibly powerful. And yes, that raises concerns around privacy.
1: So th- there's two parts to your question. One is around privacy and security, and the other one is around the use of technology. Let-, let me talk about the use of these kind of technologies in mental health, and then we'll come back to the very important topic of privacy and security. So that patient engagement platform that I talked about, Twistle, so in mental health, so one of the use cases, we were working with a health system that was struggling with team self-harm as one of the specific challenge areas, because with limited resources, they were sending their patients into the community only partially supported. But they realized that the patient's family was very motivated to participate as an extended part of the care team. And so they they included the teens' parents in the care team and allowed them, you know, provided them with the education and support mechanisms and the ability to raise their hands if they were struggling, so that they could use the parents there to surface early deterioration and uh, re-engage before readmission. So teens get tech, but mental health is a, is, a, is a very good use case of using this kind of technology to empower not just the team, the, the person with the pathology, but those around them that actually are, are a willing and able and ever more educated workforce They're just not integrated into the health system.
0: Mm. And I think the evidence would confirm that it is a, it needs to be a community approach and the supportive networks do make an impact on reducing self-harm.
1: Correct. And, and we do know that the first point of call, the first triage is done by the, usually the mother of a household. And, you know, we call her the family health manager, but it's usually the mother and it's usually the mother of the kids of the daughter of, of her parents and parents-in-law. That's the first point of call. Then there's the internet and then there's the health system. So if that role has become pivotal in modern society, then we would be crazy not to empower them, those family health managers, to play a more active role by being better educated and better connected with the health system. And that's what these platforms like Twistle do.
0: It's probably not just in modern society. I would say that the mother or the female carer has probably, all throughout history, been right across this kind of uh, what's going on yep. for the young people in their care and maybe it's now that we have we're seeing with data that they are a pivotal role in helping manage it exactly so that's entirely supposition that's not risk evidence-based
1: no we um, i mean we we do know that we uh, that our model of medicine that we have inherited is paternal and it is undergoing its own evolution to be more open-minded that everybody has a role to play, including the patient. And you can see, we talk about patient centricity. These things have been forced on us, whether we like it or not, because all sectors are undergoing a digitization and transformation and a change in what consumers' expectations. I read a, a wonderful definition of a profession that said that it's possessing a monopoly over a body of knowledge that is relatively inaccessible to lay people. Now that's not true about most things, including healthcare in the era that we're moving into. So, uh, and this isn't new over the last, you know, two to three decades, doctors have had to adjust from this paternal model of medicine where the doctor knew best to a a patient walking through the door, either well-informed or partially informed by sources of information that the doctor themselves aren't tapped into. And once again, we come back to that theme of needing clinical decision support just to help aggregate all of that evidence and help the patient understand what's clinically sound information and, and and what's yet to be proven so that you can help the patient navigate not just the advice you're giving them but the advice that they're finding out there because more and more and more that's exactly what's happening particularly around your millennials and, and you know that millennials make up a third of the world at the moment and millennials are less likely to go to their traditional health system as a starting point, they are more likely to go to the internet and their friends than other generations.
0: I can imagine that many doctors would be absolutely wanting to close that inequity gap. And data may very well be the way that they can make transparent where energy needs to be focused most, where the issues, where the low-hanging fruit is, where the wicked problems are, rather than just trying to take a shotgun approach to improving equity. Can I ask, if a doctor doesn't work within a hospital setting, how relevant is this to them in their everyday practice? What can they do?
1: It's very relevant. Wherever you've got a digital record, this data exists. And many of the adult health specialist and GP software systems have the ability to surface things like gaps in care and, well, uh I don't know how extensively it's done, but the data's there to do this kind of work.
0: What do we need to do differently?
1: We need to talk about the successes. We need to talk about how uh, many organisations around the world have transformed into data informed decision making organisations and talk about the impact that's having on quality of outcomes, patient experience and the cost of providing care. There's probably more than enough funding to provide health services in our economy The problem is waste and variability and data is good at identifying waste and identifying variability and more importantly pointing to the decisions that are made around resource consumption that have the best outcomes because the data will be able to track that.
0: That's a brave statement. We've got enough money. We're just not spending it in the right areas.
1: Well, you'd have to think about it. There's some studies that estimate that 50% of the resource consumption is waste. In Australia? Around the world in developed economies. So if you can create headroom that's, that's heading towards that 50%, you have to entertain the hypothesis that maybe there's enough funding if we address the waste.
0: A very interesting hypothesis. I'm sure there's some case studies, some research that we could link to in the show notes. Could you throw me a couple of do you have any case studies that, that are in easy access around institutions who have applied equity quality measures or used data to transform some, some part of their operation? Sure.
1: As a, a data-driven company, Health Catalysts brings its own medicine. We benchmark, <laughs> okay. uh, we benchmark the work that we do and document the improvements that we've been able to achieve. So if you go to our website, which is healthcatalyst.com, be able to search for all of these case studies we've got uh, I think about 250 of them published and there's at least uh, 600 of them waiting to be published.
0: David Dembo thank you so much for your time we appreciate you joining us today.
1: Wendy thanks for having me.
0: That was David Dembo from Health Catalyst Australia and New Zealand. I'm Wendy John thanks for joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy@medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.